Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about issues around school. And this is a big topic because anxiety and OCD are very misunderstood in the school environment. They are often missed because a lot of anxious kids and a lot of kids with OCD are not on the radar. They are quiet. They're not a problem. And so sometimes their issues aren't noticed. Their issues are also easily misinterpreted because we'll go through it. Most of the behaviors that an anxious child or child with OCD would struggle with in school can be accredited to something totally different. And that's where a lot of teachers and administrators stumble because they mislabel the behavior. Now, on the flip side, there are those kids that when cornered or feeling trapped, become very oppositional and very aggressive. And those behaviors are also often misunderstood and mislabeled as oppositional or difficult or the focus turns to the parent. You know, what is the parent doing at home to create such horrendous behavior? And that's really upsetting too, because it's not the parent's fault. The parent doesn't need more blame or guilt added on to the the parental struggle that's already existing. So I wanted to make this episode to one, talk directly to teachers, administrators, and people in the educational environment and say, hey, these are all the things I want you to look out for. Because, you know, as an educator, you already have your plate full. Like you have to learn how to teach kids and how to engage kids. And if you're an administrator, you have to learn how to navigate the bureaucracy that is the educational system. So I totally get that. And you can't be an expert in everything. So you're not going to be an expert in, you know, the mental health field as well. Just like pediatricians can't be always an expert in mental health issues. And so they can't know everything about fevers and childhood diseases, as well as all the mental health struggles. And so it's good for educators to go out and get some more education on this. And so this episode is geared towards you as well, those educators to say, look, here is like the Cliff Notes version. I don't even know if people use that expression anymore. I'm completely dating myself. But here is the Cliff Notes version of anxiety and OCD in your environment. This is what to look for. Now, if you're a parent, this is helpful as well because you may not realize that all these issues that your child is struggling with in the school environment are still connected to their anxiety and OCD. Or you may be like, Natasha, I totally get it. I know these are connected. I just don't know how to communicate that to the school and to their teacher and to the administrators in this school. And so very much like my episode with when partners don't understand anxiety, episode 40, I made that episode one for parents to go to their partner and say, here, listen to this episode. And two, to teach them directly how to help their partner. And I have kind of the same thought on this for this episode that you can go to your teacher, your child's teacher or their school and say, Hey, you know, there's this podcast, listen to this episode. She goes over all the things that anxiety and OCD can look like in your environment. 
but also it's for you. What can you do to advocate for your child in the school environment? One, what's going on or what can be going on? And two, what do you do about it? So that is a full plate of stuff to talk about today. And my private Facebook group had, they were talking and there was a thread on there about just all these struggles that they were going through with the school. And I said, you know, I'll make a podcast on that because somebody had said, I would just wish there was a podcast that I could just refer the the school to so they can just listen to it. And I was like, I don't have one, but I can make one. So that's what this is. If you're not in my private Facebook group, you might want to consider doing that. It is a very growing active group. There's over 2000 parents in there now, really supportive, loving people. Um, I don't have to monitor it too much, although I'm anal. And so I do, but you can go to facebook.com backslash groups backslash AT parenting anxious kids, and you can find it there, or you can just search on Facebook. It's called parenting kids with anxiety and OCD. Or you can go to my website at anxious toddlers to teen.com at the very, very bottom. I have a link for my private Facebook group. So anyway, let's get started. I'm going to go over in the first half of this episode, I'm going to go over all the different types of behaviors that can happen in the school environment and how it manifests. So what a teacher would see and what the explanation is typically or often behind that with a child with anxiety and OCD. So I'm not saying that any of these behaviors equal anxiety and OCD. I'm already assuming that we're talking about a child who has anxiety and OCD, and I'm giving you a perspective on how it could be their anxiety or OCD and to invest further in that. So I have quite a long list because I was just making a list as I was brainstorming and it, it grew quite long. And then in the second half of this episode, I'm going to go over what teachers and administrators in the educational environment can do that would be helpful and parentally what you can do to help advocate for that. So it's a lot, but let's get started. So I'm going to kind of go over them. They're, they're not interrelated. Um, some kids can have some of these, some kids can have others. No kid is probably going to have all of them. And they, they kind of run the gamut of issues with anxiety or issues with OCD. It was just when I was brainstorming, let's just talk about some of the most common ones at the kind of the top, but they're not really in any particular order. So test anxiety is a really, really common one. And sometimes kids don't articulate they're having anxiety, you'll see a disparity in their grades. And so sometimes I can tell a child is having test anxiety when they are getting great grades on their homework, on their in-class assignments, on their projects, and their test grades are completely not reflective of that. So they're getting, they're failing or they're getting C's or D's when they're doing really well in all other areas. That's a really good objective indicator, but you also might have a child that's not doing well academically in all areas, but they're also struggling with the anxiety around testing. So they might be more articulate about it. They might say testing makes me anxious. Or if your child is consistently getting really low grades on their tests and you know, they know the material you studied with them and you're like, I know they know this. And then they take a test 
and they're bombing it, you want to explore that further because kids get really embarrassed about being anxious during a test. And so they're not always talking about their struggles. And as a teacher, you can also see this when you see a child that you know understands the material, but is doing horrible on their tests. Or you observe them while they're taking a test and they're looking around the room and they're looking antsy and they're asking how much time is left or just their mannerisms say that they're not comfortable. That would be a good indicator to maybe explore that further. So I'm going to just go through my list and talk to you about what it looks like in the school environment. So with perfectionism, you're going to see a lot of kids erasing and rewriting. So if you see a child who is always handing in paperwork and there's holes in it and they're constantly having to redo things and you're not seeing where the error was and you're kind of like, I don't know why they're rewriting that or they're throwing it out in the trash and they're starting all over. That would be something you'd want to explore further. Kids with just right OCD will take a really long time or can take a really long time doing things. So they might rewrite things over and over, but they also might do things intentionally slow so that they're absolutely perfect. If you're having a child that gets all the material and is a, a quick learner, but everything they're doing is taking so long and they're never getting anything done, that would be something to explore as well. With that theme, with the just right OCD, a lot of times those kids need to correct people's words. And so I have a few kids that I'm working with in my private practice where they, they correct the peers and they correct their teachers. And they'll say, I think you used the wrong word. I think you meant to use this word, or I think that you meant that instead of that. And that can look very obnoxious. <laughs> I mean, I would be offended. And you know, if I wasn't treating them and I knew what their problem was, it can come off as pretty rude. So that is the way that it can look in the school environment as well. I want to put my rambling of my list on pause for a second. I want to say, if you work in a school environment, you really should educate yourself on the different OCD themes, because a lot of people just think OCD is about organizing, about being neat and about being a germaphobe. And that is such a small, tiny component of OCD and OCD, as you can tell, and this is why I'm pausing because I'm talking about just right OCD. And you're probably like, what is that? If you don't listen to my podcast all the time. So I would say to you, if you have time, listen to episode 25. I go over the eight most common OCD themes. That would be really helpful. If you're like, are you got to be kidding me? I have no time. You're lucky I'm listening to you right now, <laughs> which is probably a very big possibility. If uh, a parent told you to listen to this podcast, then watch my YouTube video. I have a YouTube video that just gives a very brief introduction of what OCD is. It is 10 minutes long. It won't take you any time at all. I'll leave a link in the show notes. And it's just like, if you think, I forgot what the name of the OCD video is. Something like, if you think you're so OCD, then you're not. Let me go look it up really quick. So you can find this at, um, if you go to youtube.com backslash C backslash anxious toddlers, 78. That's my YouTube channel. And then I just made this. And so it should be right in the front and it's called 
you are not so OCD. Let me show you what is. It is a 15 minute video. And actually I think the actual video is only 10 minutes, probably take you no time at all. And then you're going to be like, Oh, okay. That's what OCD is. It'll just instantly give you the information and you can understand what I'm talking about as I'm rambling on about different types of OCD, because I'm going to mention names of OCD. And if you're a parent and you have not listened to me before, watch that video as well, or go back to that podcast episode. Cause it's really important that you understand the different OCD themes. They look really, really different. So there's sensory motor OCD where kids are very in tune with their bodily functions. And a lot of times those kids need to go to the bathroom over and over and over again. And so I have one, I have one of my own children who may be starting to develop this. He has OCD and you know, it morphs and it changes into different things. And so we were just on a trip and he was going to the bathroom all the time. And we're like, what is going on? And I thought, oh gosh, not a new theme. So a lot of times those kids will need to go to the bathroom. Frequent bathroom visits with an anxious child or a child with OCD is definitely a common issue in the school environment. So they might have sensory motor OCD, but there's so many other reasons too. Anxious kids need to get out of the room. They need to breathe. They might be panicking. Anxious kids might feel like they're not going to have time to go to the bathroom. So they want to go again. They might have diarrhea. So don't be quick as an educator to discipline or um, embarrass that child. I had some kids that I worked with in my practice where they went to a school where they gave out cards and you only had a certain amount of cards to go to the bathroom per day. It was like, I don't remember, four or five bathroom passes and that was it. Or maybe it was even less than that because they expected that you should be able to go to the bathroom you know, at recess and at lunch and you shouldn't have to interrupt the educational process. But when you have an anxious kid or a child with OCD and you say you cannot do blah, 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 then they have to do blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what is blah, blah, blah? I don't know. My son is like that. If I, and we've talked about this before on previous episodes, if I say to him, and I've made this mistake before, if I say something like, if you come out of your room one more time, you're losing your iPad. And then he'll be like, I just did. I just came out of my room one more time. So now what does that mean? Am I punished? Am I grounded? And it could be anything. If I say, you have to stand right there. If you move one inch, you're going to be in trouble. He will move that inch because the stress of being told that he can't do it is so overwhelming that he wants to get it over with. I see that in kids all the time. And that can look oppositional. So that's not just a bathroom issue. That is just a school issue where sometimes if you say, you absolutely can't do this, some kids with anxiety or OCD will feel compelled to do it. And I know that can seem really weird. So on the opposite end of the continuum for kids that have bathroom issues, you have kids that refuse to go to the bathroom. And so I was one of those kids growing up with social anxiety, did not realize I had social anxiety until in my forties, which is totally ridiculous because I'm only 45. So I treat it and I didn't even realize I had it (laughs) zero insight. But now that I look back at my behavior, I would never poop at school. <laughs> like that was like not an option. And I remember thinking like just the other day, I was thinking about all the social anxiety issues I had that didn't, that went unnoticed by myself and my family. I went to a sleepover camp. It was kind of an embarrassment. I probably shouldn't share this stuff with you, <laughs> but I do anyway. So I was at the sleepover camp 
and there was, it was like a cabin and there was a bathroom in the cabin and it was like this old wooden little cabin and the bathroom was just this rinkety thing, but it was like in the room. So there was a door, but it went up to the rafters and there was no, like, there was no ceiling over the bathroom. And so at having social anxiety, a big issue with social anxiety for a lot of kids is someone's going to smell or hear me pee or poop. And I'd rather only do it at home. So, cause there's a lot of embarrassment with social anxiety, a lot of worry about being judged or being laughed at or being criticized. That's a, that's a big bulk of social anxiety. And in fact, it's probably all of social anxiety if you wanted to sum it up. And so not wanting to go to the bathroom is a big part. And me and this other girl would sneak out of the cabin like around midnight or like 1am and we'd wait until the counselor was asleep and we would both leave. And there was like a showering room that was actually like a nice building that they had built with toilets in there. And we would sneak out and we would both go in there to go poop. (laughs) Is that bizarre? And I never thought anything weird about that. I was just like, yeah, like that's normal. I just don't want to go to the bathroom. But nobody else had that problem. Just me and thankfully this other girl who probably had some anxiety. So your students may not be going to the bathroom. They may be very uncomfortable. I had just an issue with going poop, but there are a lot of kids who will not pee as well. And so they, they watch their, um, their water intake. Older kids will, you know, not drink at all while they're in school. So they don't have to go to the bathroom. Now, if you have a child with OCD, they might not be doing that because they don't want to go into the bathroom because it's germy or because they're going to have to do too many rituals. So there's that. If you have a child that's going to the nurse all the time, you might want to take a look at that because there's a lot of somatic issues with anxiety. My stomach hurts, my head hurts. So being aware of what students are going to the nurse all the time, educating the nurse, or if you are a school nurse, educate yourself on the somatic issues of anxiety. How does it look? In episode 14, I talk all about that. I talk about how anxiety can make kids physically sick and it's not just their stomach. So that would be a good episode for a school nurse to listen to. Uh, They have a lot of cafeteria. I'm just going through my list and I actually have a lot. And so I'm trying to speed it up a little bit. They have a lot of cafeteria triggers, uh, fear of seeing someone throw up, fear of smelling the, the smells that will make them throw up. I had a boy that would never go into the cafeteria and his mom would pick him up at lunch which eventually we moved back and tried to get him into the cafeteria because we don't really want to accommodate those anxieties. But you have to do what you have to do to get them to go to school. Sometimes a class can be a trigger. I have had kids be very triggered by what they talk about in class. So if science is talking about germs and they are going under a microscope to see you know, what's on the doorknobs, that's not helpful for a child with OCD. I had a child once who had a lot of issues around death and um, World War II was attached to her OCD and they had a whole history lesson um, for a quarter on World War II and that was very triggering for her. And so these kids would sometimes skip the class. They They would skip and they would get in trouble for that and nobody would dig further and say, what's going on right now? That class is a trigger. So if you have a kid who doesn't typically, you know, skip classes and is, is dodging a class, you want to look a little bit closer to that. Sometimes kids won't participate because they have social anxiety or selective mutism. 
So if you have a child whose participation grade is really low, you might want to look into that. You know, don't just assume that they are not interested in your class. Maybe for them to raise their hand and participate is a really big deal. And forcing them by threatening them, okay, you're not going to get a good participation grade is callous. And it's not recognizing that they have a legitimate mental health condition that is causing them to struggle. And you want to eventually, and we'll talk about this in part two, like, of course you want to get kids to a place where they can function typically, but it doesn't happen overnight. And educators need to realize that. So we also talked about kids being oppositional or aggressive. If they're cornered, And this especially is for younger kids. So as kids get older, they tend to learn how to self-regulate with the anxiety and OCD. But if they're cornered and they're little, you know, if someone's in their space and they have issues with feeling claustrophobic or feeling dysregulated or feeling, um, you know, it's a germ issue, they might get aggressive. So you always want to talk to the parent talking to you guys who are the educators. Now you want to talk to the parent and see like, what are their, what is the child's triggers? What's going on? Don't quickly label someone oppositional before you realize what things are causing them to, to get oppositional. I had a kid where somebody had upset him on the playground and he went running to get away from them and was on like the monkey bars and the teacher's aides were walking towards him because the other kid told on him, And it wasn't something, it wasn't a big deal, but as they were walking towards him, he was very anxious about getting in trouble and doing the wrong thing in school. And so he saw these aides running towards him. And so he started to take off and he was like, I think in kindergarten or first grade at the time. And so he ran to the fence and so they started running after him, which made him run farther. And then they grabbed his, his leg because he was climbing over the fence. And then he got really aggressive and he started to hit them and All of this was because he thought he was getting in trouble. Now, ironically, he gets in bigger trouble because now he's assaulting the aides and he's, you know, trying to leave the school grounds. That all sounds very oppositionally defiant. But when you talk to the child, when I had him in, in my practice and I talked to him in his session, he was like, I was going to get in trouble and I didn't know what to do. I mean, it sounds dumb because you're like, oh my gosh, seriously. So you like decide to like attack the aides and leave school, but he's in kindergarten. He doesn't know it's like a fight or flight thing. So those aides and the administrators, they didn't know that kid. So they were just like, he's a difficult kid. You know, he's a behavioral problem. And the mom had to do a lot of corrective reframing. And I had to go in and write a letter to the school and say, these are his issues. Um, He's really anxious. He's not an oppositional or aggressive kid. So be careful making quick assumptions without knowing the child's history. So moving on, um, a lot of times kids are late to class, especially kids with OCD. They've got a lot of compulsions. They have to go and wash. They can get stuck in the bathroom, um, washing and overwashing. Sometimes kids have moral OCD. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, You can listen to episode 32 when I talk about moral or scrupulosity OCD, as it's often called. And those kids are worried that they did do something wrong. And so a big component of moral OCD is to, one, confess possible bad behaviors that they did or did in the past or that they think they might want to do, and also to get reassurance. So I once had a girl a really long time ago who told the teacher that she was pretty sure that she had cheated on the test. She went up to her after the test and said, I think I cheated. And the teacher took it very seriously and called the parents. And she, she said she cheated. 
And it took like a week and me kind of interjecting as well and reframing things and digging with the child to figure, well, why, what made you think you, you cheated? Well, I think when I went to the bathroom, I think I saw the answers and the teacher was like, what answers? I didn't have any answers on my desk. And she said, well, I thought I saw the, the answers that you had on the paper you're working on. She said, I didn't have any answers. I was working on something completely different. So that was the first indication that we realized that that child had moral OCD. So she hadn't been diagnosed with that until that incident happened. But if you have a child with moral OCD or scrupulosity OCD, it's the same thing. It's just a different name. It's good to tell the teacher, even preemptively, like, hey, this is what it is. Here's an article on it, or here's a podcast episode on it. And this is what it looks like. Because a lot of times kids will look for reassurance, which is it's a compulsion. If you are a teacher and you have a student who's asking the exact same question over and over and over again, you might want to talk to the parent and say, does she have OCD? Because a big compulsion, we all think a compulsion is just washing hands over and over, but there are a zillion compulsions. And a big one for kids is getting reassurance from the parent or a teacher or, or a friend. So be, be cognizant of that. Moving on on my list, I have just a few more, and then we're going to take a break. And then I'm going to come back and tell you, what do you do with all this stuff? <laughs> and I'm just like, it could be this, and it could be this, and it could be this. It sounds like a lot, but for most kids, it's only a few of these. So I do want to mention fire alarms and lockdown drills are a complete trigger for a lot of anxious kids. I have so many kids on my caseload who have special 504 plans for fire alarms and lockdown drills. Some parents have an attitude of, you know what, that's real life. They're going to have to deal with it, but it is so triggering that I disagree with that. I think it's good to have some sort of plan in place because we have to look with all of the things I'm going to be talking about. The most important thing is getting our kids to school because school refusal happens when all of these things are not dealt with. And so I kind of look at it like an onion. So the outer onion is go to school. And if we have to make accommodations, and I'll get to this in my second part, but if we have to make accommodations or make things easier for you, as long as you're getting to school, that is the number one most important thing. And then from there, we want to give you tools to function better at school. But then if you start doing school refusal again, we're going to move back out of that onion and just do the outer layer and get you to school. A lot of times people will say, you know, well, I'll go on my tangent in a second. Let me just finish. I have two more. So fire alarms, lockdown drills, sometimes it's a sensory issue because a lot of kids have sensory processing issues as well as anxiety. And a lot of times it's just the concept of, you know, is the school on fire or is there a bad guy in the school? Um, Selective mutism is a very big school issue that is misunderstood. A lot of people don't understand selective mutism. And if you go to my website at anxioustoddlers2teens.com, And you scroll all the way down, there's a search box and you can type in selective mutism and I have an article on it, looking at what the signs are and what you can do to help a child with selective mutism, because that's a totally separate issue, but it is very debilitating and more, more often than not in the school environment is the most debilitating spot for a selective mutism type of kid. So this is a child who maybe will refuse to talk, refuse to read out loud, if you're testing them, a lot of times in kindergarten, first grade, you pull kids over and you have them read to you um, or do their alphabet. And 
kids with selective mutism will fail that because they don't want other people to hear their voice. And so sometimes teachers don't realize that that's what's going on. And they wind up, you know, being tested for delays when they don't have any delays, they can read just fine, but not to the teacher and not in the school environment or not around their peers. So you have to kind of explore that further. And lastly, hair pulling and skin picking, which are behaviors that can be associated with OCD and anxiety happen often in the classroom environment, because when you are stressed or when you're bored, which are two things that happen often in school, you tend to pick and pull more often. And so it's important for teachers to be aware if they see a student pulling out her hair or playing with hair follicles or eating her hair, which is a component sometimes, or picking at scabs so they're bleeding, you want to be aware of that so that you can get with that parent and offer that child some tools in their hand or some coping mechanisms so that doesn't continue. Okay, well, that was a lot but I wanted to go over everything that I could possibly think of. And I'm sure there's more that I've missed, uh, but these are the big ones that just really stood out that can happen in a school environment and maybe happening to your children, or if you're an educator, maybe happening at your school. So up next, I'm going to talk about what you guys can do to help kids who are in this situation, whether you're an educator or a parent. Stay tuned. That's what's up next. You're listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. For more parenting support, check out Natasha's parenting e-courses on a variety of topics. Each parenting e-course includes a series of teaching videos that can be watched at your own pace. For more information, visit anxioustoddlers.com forward slash parenting hyphen videos. Welcome back. So for starters, it really depends on where you live. So I don't know how the Canada educational system works. I don't know how Australia works. I don't know how Great Britain works. And I know I do have a lot of listeners from those three areas. So this may not be relevant to you, what I'm about to say. But for those that are in the United States, um, there are IEPs, individual education plans, and there are 504 plans. There is a really good article on understood.org called Understanding 504 Plans. And I will link that because it's great. And I'm not going to explain what 504 plans are or how you advocate for one. But basically an IEP is if your child needs some individualized instruction. It's it's an individual education plan and they, they need some accommodations educationally. But a 504 has to do with greater um, struggles that kids have with disabilities and that they should get access to the same education as their classmates and not be debilitated because of any disabilities. And so that covers a lot, including mental health. And unfortunately, I think sometimes it can be hard to get a 504, but it's it's an important thing to get if your child or if your student is having multiple struggles in the areas that I talked about before the break. So if you were like, yes to that and yes to that, or if your child is having school refusal in general, and you're having a hard time because of their anxiety or OCD, just getting them to school, you should immediately get a request, a 504 plan, because those ongoing absences are going to accrue. And unless there's a formalized plan in place that can get you and your child into a lot of trouble. So I always think that if there are a lot of areas that are happening in the school environment that are impeding your child's 
educational process, then it's good to get a 504 plan. Even if you have staff that is willing to do some accommodations, you can't guarantee that the following year you're going to have great teachers who are going to be willing to accommodate without a formalized education plan. So if you are a teacher and you're seeing a lot of struggles, you know, maybe you want to talk to your administration and talk to the counselor and say, you know, what about a 504 plan for this child? So I'm not going to go, I'm not going to like belabor that whole point, but I do feel like it's important for parents to know that there is something called a 504 plan, which kind of legally puts in place accommodations for your child. And I think it's important for teachers to understand that it's good to advocate for a 504 plan for those kids that are struggling so that the following years, that child has some good accommodations that people are going to stay with and they're going to follow. So anyway, now let's talk about what do you do with all of those things that I talked about before. There are a lot of things that educators can do in the classroom to make life a lot better for kids with anxiety and OCD, because often educators may say, and I've, I've done a lot of trainings for educators, mainly for the counselors, and they'll say, you know, we don't see a lot of this. I, don't, I see a lot more ADHD and ODD and learning disabilities like that. Those are the areas that we really see a lot in the educational environment. And it's not like our anxious kids aren't going to school with those kids. They're there too. They're just not normally as loud and as obvious. And so these kids get missed a lot because their behaviors, they're not front burner issues. So they are there and there are things because the first thing that a child with anxiety or OCD is going to do is just going to refuse to go to school. I'm going to avoid because avoid is a big component of anxiety and OCD. So I'm just going to avoid. And unfortunately, and I know sometimes parents like to argue this with me, but now you can have a child who's anxious and doesn't want to go to school because of something that's happening in the school environment. And it could be all the things that I listed above. And so if you fix those things, then the child can function and do okay in the school environment. Sometimes parents just take their kids and they, they homeschool and they say, you know what, forget about the school environment It's too triggering. And that's a slippery slope because it depends on your child and what's going on with their anxiety or OCD theme, because more often than not, and a big more often than not, it will balloon out because once you give in to avoidance, then OCD and anxiety is hungry for more. And I very rarely, and I know it happens because I have people who have emailed me or commented on my articles and have debated this with me. And so I, I know it happens and it happens in my practice too, where sometimes it's a good thing and the child can regroup, they can do some social things outside of a school environment and they can function really well. And that really is up to the parent to continue to work in therapy and get the child out of the house and functioning and not avoiding anything else in their world. But unfortunately, more often than not, it's a slippery slope where then the child doesn't want to go out. They don't want to go to restaurants. They don't want to go to the grocery store. They become agoraphobic, meaning they stay in home and they're afraid to leave the house. So I'm a big proponent, if possible, to really encourage your child to get back into school as soon as they can. And there are exceptions. There's always exceptions to every rule. So don't, don't yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, you know what, they're on fire and they need to be taken home and put out. The fire has to be put out and that might be a temporary uh, break or reprieve from school. I totally get that. But when we're trying to get them in school and functioning, let's talk about what to do with that. So if you have a child who has 
um, separation anxiety. For starters, listen to episode 17 if you haven't already, because I go into detail about what to do for older kids with separation anxiety, school-age kids, because I'm I'm not going to go into detail with all of these issues. I just want to touch all the things that happen in a school environment, but that would be a good one to listen to. A handoff is really helpful. It's huge. So if you can get an administrator or a teacher to either meet you in the car lane um, or you park and you walk your child into the administrator's office and you have a counselor or a teacher who is willing to be with that child for five, 10 minutes before school starts, that can make or break the difference of a child refusing to go to school. So handoffs for younger children with um, school refusal are very helpful. Also, I've had some kids, especially younger kids, if they can go into the classroom early and get there before the chaos, sometimes that helps. That helps with social anxiety. That helps with kids with sensory issues where they're not overloaded. We're not dropping them off on a playground because a lot of times schools will have kind of like a, my kids school, well, that's not true. So my, my daughter's in kindergarten they do this. Like you drop them off and they're in like a recess environment and then they're called into the classroom. My older kids, they don't have that. They just have to line up and then they go in. But sometimes that pre-recess before school starts is too overwhelming for kids. It's not structured. It's chaotic. For socially anxious kids, it's overwhelming. So getting them to be able to go into the classroom setting before the students get there, can be that can be really helpful. With testing, there's all sorts of accommodations that can happen. You can have a child test alone. You can have not timed test that you can move them when they're being tested. So they're not being able to see the other students taking the test. So there's not this concern that, oh my gosh, everybody's finishing and I'm not done yet. There's lots of things with selective mutism. Like we talked about in, um, before the break, those kids, if they're tested in front of their peers will not do well. And so if you're doing a verbal test with a selectively mute kid, that's not going to go well. (laughs) I think that's kind of obvious, right? Um, Also, parentally, you can go, if you're a school nurse, it'd be helpful for you to understand that sometimes parents are going to go to you and they're going to say, hey, my child has anxiety and they're afraid to poop at school. They're afraid to pee at school, or they're afraid that they're going to throw up or their anxiety makes them nauseous. But it's good for you to know that they don't have a stomach virus. Don't send them home because when the school nurse sends that child home over and over and over again, it reinforces the anxiety and it makes it worse. So I often tell parents to partner with the school nurse and hopefully the school nurse is understanding. And you say, Hey, my child is diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And, or even if they're not, my child is anxious, you know, your kids, so they don't have to have a diagnosis for you to feel comfortable and confident saying my kid has anxiety. You know, parents know, you know, these things. So if your child's anxious and you need the nurse's help, go to her or him and say, you know, she has a major fear of throwing up. Emetophobia, by the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to episode 35. I talk all about fear of throwing up, emetophobia, very, very common, not a common name, but a very common phobia. People just don't understand that there's a fancy name for it. So, you know, partner with the nurse. That's an important thing. If your child has a lot of um, fears. I'll say to kids who have emetophobia, they're afraid they're going to throw up. I'll say, look, you're fine on the weekends. Do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy with them. And then I'll say, if you feel nauseous, I get it. You may not want to be sitting in math class 
feeling like you're going to throw up, but you know, it's just your anxiety. And so if you can go to the nurse and regroup, reframe, reset, and then get better and then go maybe to your next class or skip that class and then go to the next one, that is 10 times better than going home because you didn't completely give in to your anxiety. So that can help. You need the nurse on board with that. Fidget toys are super helpful for anxious kids. Sometimes because there's a craze around fidget spinners now, that's kind of ruined it for the rest of the kids because now all fidget toys are kind of seen as like a distraction. But for anxious kids, I mean, they make rings that that slide. So your child can like be um, spinning the ring on their finger. That's kind of helpful. There's also, maybe I'll leave links in the show notes of the things I'm talking about. But my kids, all three of my kids love this. There is, it's kind of like a um, magnet cube. So it, it comes in a square, but they're like these little circle magnets and you can make jewelry out of them. So you can make a bracelet just with these magnet balls. They just link together. They're like really strong, total choking hazard. So not good for preschool. <laughs> I mean, definitely if you only have an older kid, but so my 14 year old, she can wear it as jewelry, but then when she's feeling anxious, she can take it off and she can play with it. It's really cool. I actually love it and I play with it. <laughs> so I'll leave a link below. Hopefully I'll remember to do that. Um, some other things that teachers can do that I've had um, written into 504 plans is don't put kids on the spot. There's nothing worse than randomly calling on an anxious kid. When I was a kid and I had anxiety, I knew I had anxiety. I didn't know I had social anxiety. And this is really part of social anxiety as well. But I had this history teacher in eighth grade, and I'll never forget it because it was scarring. <laughs> it's so sad. You're like, wow, she like pooped, you know, at 1 a.m. At, at camp. And now she's going to tell me about her eighth grade scars. <laughs> but these are things that stay with anxious kids. And these are the things that are going to stay with your kids or your students. And you don't want to be one of those memories if you're an educator, because I don't remember much of eighth grade, but I can tell you all about my history class because I had a history teacher who would call on me. He would call on people randomly to read. And as a socially anxious kid, reading in front of other students was hellacious. Is that a word? Hellacious? I think it is. It was horrible and it was scary. And I would panic about going into that class. I would want to skip school because I didn't want to go into that class. And he was a nice teacher, but he, he did this and it would have been great if I had a 504 plan or even just a deal with him that said, Hey, just don't call on me. So I also had another history teacher. What was that? That was like ninth grade. I even remember her name, Miss Sloan. And I remember, I don't remember any of my other teachers' names in ninth grade, but I remember hers because she was scarring because <laughs> I maybe appeared like I wasn't listening, which is highly possible. And she called on me and I got the wrong answer because I completely wasn't listening to her. And then um, she told me the answer and then she went back to me and she said, what was the answer? And I didn't listen to her because when she called on me the first time in my head, I thought, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. Now everybody, and it was like a, an ad- like an honors history class. And I wasn't in a lot of honors classes. So it was kind of a, uh, I, I felt a little out of place there, even though I shouldn't have. And so when she was humiliating me the first time, <laughs> I wasn't listening to her because in my head as a socially anxious person, I 
constantly talking. And I was saying to myself, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. She is embarrassing me in front of everybody. Everybody's staring at me. So all that noise was going on. So then she went back to talking and then she went back to me and she said, Natasha, what's the answer now? And I didn't know it again because I wasn't listening the first time. So I said, I don't, I don't know. And so she told me again and my social anxiety continued to talk and I was berating myself. Oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. Why is she being so mean? Now everybody is looking at me a a second time. And now they all think I'm an idiot because I didn't know the answer again. So then she looked away. She started, you know, talking about whatever she was talking about because I still don't remember what it was. And she went back to me a third time and it was mortifying and it was traumatizing. And teachers really need to not humiliate kids in general, but I mean, anxious kids, they're going to remember it. I'm 45. I remember that moment in ninth grade. Kind of sad. I know. All right, moving on. So another big stressor for kids are presentations. And I don't know why every single class in high school has to have some sort of presenting. There's a lot of putting kids on the spot, which I get. Yeah, it's good to prepare kids. It's good to prepare them to work in teams. It's good for them to build confidence, to talk in front of their peers. But you know what? Some people just aren't going to like that. And I don't feel, and you might disagree with me, but I don't feel like you necessarily have to present in front of a class to function in society. (laughs) That might be my social anxiety coming out. But there are kids who will avoid school. They will refuse to go to school. They will have a lot of anticipatory anxiety over some stupid presentation that they have to do. So remember the onion. The first rule of school is go to it. (laughs) You want your kids to go to school no matter what. That's the most important thing. So if you have to make some accommodations to get them to feel like school is a safe place, that's important. As an educator, that should be your number one priority. So there are tons of other arrangements that kids can do for presenting. You can video it at home and show the teacher. You can present after class. You can do an alternative uh, besides the presentation. You know, wherever your child's anxiety is at, you can accommodate to where they're at and you can work on it. They don't, in my opinion, they don't necessarily have to love presenting ever. I don't. And I, you know, sometimes I have to do trainings or present to people and I hate it. I do it, but I hate it. And maybe one day I'll get over that. But I think it's important to meet your child where they're at. And we don't want kids avoiding school because of a presentation. Also, I think that we want to be aware of their triggers. Like I talked about before, there are students that are highly triggered by themes in science and in history, and sometimes in English too, like depending on what they have to read. You know, there are certain novels that I've had kids really struggle with. So I've had, depending on what's going on, I had a child that had such acute OCD, she really could not be in that history class. And so we arranged it. She did not, she did not partake in that history lesson on world war two. She would go to the library and that was perfectly fine. And we were able to maintain her education because she could still go to school as long as she missed that class. Also in, um, 504 plans, I have had uh, agreements where kids can walk out of class. If they're feeling overwhelmed, go to the counselor. I have, um, a few kids that I've worked with who have a metaphobia, the fear of vomiting. We just talked about it. Remember? And they will have a code word with the teacher. And you can do this with any any issue. It doesn't have to be emetophobia. But they had a code word with the teacher. And so all they had to do is say that code word to the teacher and they were able to leave. 
I've had a few kids that I work with that even the code word was overwhelming. And so they had a gesture that they would do to the teacher and the teacher would kind of nod and they were allowed to go to the library or the nurse or the administrator, whatever, or the counselor, whatever they needed and whatever was already prearranged. And that can be very helpful because some kids feel overwhelmed. They feel trapped. And if they can have some communication with the teacher, that's really helpful. There are other things um, that you can use code words for depending on what is happening. You can do code words where the teacher has a code word. If the child is picking or pulling at their hair, the teacher can walk over to them and do a gesture, either tap on their desk. That is kind of a code word for don't pull. Or I've had teachers where they had a gesture they did silently while they were teaching to that child, which meant, Hey, you're pulling or you're picking. And that was so helpful because kids can come home and like half, there's like a big chunk of hair missing in their bag because they pulled it all out in class and the teacher saw it, but didn't know what to do with that. And so team up with teachers and teachers team up with parents so that you guys can come up with some of these alternative plans. So sometimes some of this stuff, you know, isn't so bad at school that they, they really don't warrant or need a 504 plan, but you can partner with your child's teacher or the teacher can partner with the parent and, and come up with some of these accommodations that are a little bit more informal. Last year, my son's teacher came up to me and said, Hey, you know, I think he's struggling with some of the sounds, um, his S was TH sounds. And honestly, as much as I overanalyze my kids, I never picked up on that. And I was super appreciative that she came up to me and brought that to my attention. And they were able to get him some speech without an IEP. And it's really been helping. So if you're an educator and you're seeing something, you can approach a parent. And a lot of times parents are going to be very appreciative because maybe they didn't know that was happening in the school environment, or maybe they didn't even know about it at all. And I went to my son's teacher this year and I said, Hey, you know, he has these issues. And I I went into them, even though it's not really impacting his school environment. And she said, Oh, you know what? I noticed he says, I'm a lot. And he says, I'm a lot when I'm testing him. And I said, that is a thing that he does when he's nervous. And it's good for you to kind of clue into that because if you're hearing him say, I'm a lot, then he's getting nervous. And I went into some of his perfectionism. I told her, how he struggles sometimes to be perfect and sometimes homework gets balled up and then flattened out again. And she said, I had no idea he had that. And so she made it a point in class a lot of times to talk to her students and say, you know, we're not all perfect. Or sometimes she said, I purposely make a mistake on the board and I'll say, oh, look what I did. And I love that. I mean, what an awesome teacher to model that for all of her students, not just my son. And I can remember when my youngest was in preschool, she wore this really weird bowler hat all the time. And, and I went and I talked to her preschool teacher and I said, you know, she has to wear that because sometimes she gets socially anxious and she feels safer with that hat on. And her teacher was like, oh my gosh, I thought that she just thought it was really cute. I'm like, no, she has some social anxiety. So you want communication to go both ways. When parents and teachers talk, kids benefit. And so open up the line of communication, whether you're an educator or a parent, it's so important. And if you find that you're hitting a barrier, you want to just explain yourself. So if you're a mom, you're like, I just want to make 
your job easier. I want, if they're not anxious or they're not doing these things, they're going to be a better student. They're going to be easier for you, or they're going to be able to do their work better. And if you're an educator and you're trying to talk to a parent, you can come from a, a place of caring and say, I, I have your child five days a week for, I don't know what, six or seven hours a day, which is a lot. I mean, that's a big bulk of time in your child's life. And I want to do my part to help with their anxiety or their OCD. What can I do to help? And that is huge because kids are in that environment most of the day, most of the week. That's a big part of their life. So to keep those worlds separate doesn't make any sense. And it it really doesn't help the child. So hopefully I've opened up your eyes to A, what could be happening in the school environment and B, all the ideas of how you could help a child in that environment blossom and do better. Now, obviously this was not exhaustive, but it should just get the creative juices flowing to say, oh, you know what? There are things that we could be doing. There are things we can be doing to make things better. If you want more resources, definitely visit my YouTube channel as well, because I make videos that are on different topics typically, and they're shorter. So you can visit youtube.com backslash C backslash anxious toddlers 78. I'll leave a link below and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Those videos come out every Thursday and don't forget to subscribe to my podcast. My episodes come out every Tuesday, so you can get me Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if that's not enough, go to my website at anxious toddlers to teens.com. And I spent two years writing articles for that website and there are a zillion of them. And they're about anxiety, OCD, and parenting. So you might find something interesting over there. I hope you're having a wonderful week. If you have a moment and you're enjoying my podcast, this is the time where I grovel. (laughs) It will take you literally, literally one second to hit a star on iTunes and show your support by reflecting how you feel about my podcast. If you have three seconds, maybe a little bit longer, 10 seconds, and you can hit the button that says leave a review and leave a review for the podcast. That not only helps me and my self-esteem, but it helps other parents know how this podcast is, whether it's worth their time. So I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to AT Parenting Survival Podcast. For more tips and parenting support, visit anxioustoddlers.com.